talking baseball. Klazuski, Campanella talking baseball. The man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber, and the nuke. Welcome back, everybody. Take a seat on the pine along with my guest today, Jim Mudcat Grant and Dr. Tommy John III. Yeah, name sounds familiar, huh? Well, it should. And we will talk to him about TJ surgery, his dad. But first, we're going to go to Mudcat Grant because this is a guy that is a member of an exclusive club. A very exclusive club. As a matter of fact, he has a book called The Black Aces. And those guys consist of all black players that have won 20 games in a major league season. Jim Mudcat Grant, welcome to the show, my friend. It's good to talk to you. Never had a losing season in the big leagues except one. And that was the Montreal Expos expansion year. And he was the starting pitcher for the Montreal Expos in their first ever game in 1969. That was the only year that he had a losing season in the big leagues, and he spent 14 years in the big leagues. Jim Mudcat Grant, welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you. How are you? Oh, I have fun, old Stephen. Not too bad. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to go back uh, a few years with uh, with this career of yours for sure. It spanned huh? uh, it spanned fourteen years, but what do you look back on and are proudest of among all the things that you ever did in the game, Jim? Well, I, you know, I, I go back and I, I, I think about a lot of things, but I think about John Shane. Uh, John Shane was the pitching coach for, uh, for the Minnesota Twins, and uh, John Shane spent a lot of time, and uh, with with a, a bullpen friend of mine, and. Um, I I go back and I think about him a lot because he taught me breaking pitches. He taught me change-ups and stuff like that. So I, I think about that a lot. Johnny Sane, of course, the great player and the great uh, pitching coach in the major leagues that was around for a long, long time. And you're mm-hmm. talking about the Minnesota Twins, and it seemed like even though you had some pretty good years uh, when you were originally uh, taken by the Cleveland Indians – when you got to Minnesota, it really amped up your career a little bit. Yes, it did. I I think I think what it had a lot to do with it was Harmon Killebrew. <laughs> Harmon Killebrew, Harmon Killebrew made sure that he hit a three-run home or some time or another, especially during the time that uh, uh, that that uh, I pitched up there uh, for, for the Twins. Now I wasn't with the twins right away. It was a little bit later on that I was with the twins. Right. With the Minnesota Twins, but um, on, on uh, as as we as we talked, uh, John Hussain was 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 part of that. Well, when you think of Black Aces, because yeah. of cable television and everything, you think of the Ace of Spades and the Ace of Clubs. Well, they're not the only Black Aces in the world, folks. 
There's Vita Blue, Al Downing, Bob Gibson, Dwight Gooden, Fergie Jenkins, Sad Sam Jones, Don Newcomb, Mike Norris, David Price, J.R. Richards, C.C. Sabathia, Dave Stewart, Dontrell Willis, and Earl Wilson, and, of course, Jim Mudcat Grant. As one of the guys, tell us about your book. The book, uh, the, I wanted to... To talk about uh, black twenty game winners for a long time, uh, and um, I spent some time uh, thinking about it and uh, thinking about uh, twenty game winners. There weren't a lot of twenty game uh, black twenty game winners uh, during those those days, and uh, but I wanted to to. To really get involved in in black twenty game winners, and uh, because it was a little difficult from time to time before then, before the uh, I came up with the black twenty game winners, uh, because uh, it was very difficult uh, back in those days. Uh, there were a lot of of of, um, of 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 black starters just didn't get their due like they like I thought like I thought they did. They should have. Not only way. didn't they get their due, there weren't a lot of them around. No, there wasn't a lot. Well, uh, like I say, uh, if, if there were fifteen of them around, <laughs> it would that was a lot. Yeah, I mean, there couldn't have been a whole lot of black 20-game winners. I mean, there no. could have been, but the, based on the percentages, there weren't because of the fact that there weren't a lot of black starters at that time. Right, but well, that's true, too. And and speaking of black starters and black players in general, why do you think there's been such a big decline in African-American participation at the major league level in the last few years? I've been thinking about that, uh, and uh, there has been a decline, and uh, um, I wonder, I wonder why. And uh, of course, um, I will, you know, stretch out on that and see what I can do about um, uh, going back and forth and find out why we are having this lack of uh, black 20-game winners, uh, 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 black starting pitchers, let me put it that way. I really don't know, but uh, with the with the little peek in and the peeking in and out and stuff like that and see if I can find out, uh, we'll see. Let's go back to 1965 because I know that's a year that uh, brings a smile to your face um, or a semi-smile. I mm-hmm. should say, uh, 1965 was the year you became one of the Black Aces. You right. won 21 games that year. But not only that, but you pitched in the World Series. And I want to point this out to everybody listening. Because Jim Mudcat Grant pitched game one of the 1965 World Series against the Los Angeles Dodgers. Pitched a complete game shutout. And then came back a couple of days later in game four and started again. And didn't do quite as well as he did in his first game. 
But the reason I'm throwing that in there, because then he came back in game seven and started again. <laughs> Do you have any idea? Oh, incidentally, game seven was a complete game. No, game six. I'm sorry. It wasn't game seven. It was game six, and it was another complete game shutout. The Dodgers beat the Minnesota Twins in game seven of the 1965 World Series. There's something I want to ask you about the MVP in that series. And the other thing I want to ask you is, do you have any idea how many pitches you threw that week in that World Series? No, I don't. But if, 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 uh, if I think about it, you know, I'll, I'll, I, I can rev it up a little bit. Uh, um, but, well, I know the first game only took two hours and six minutes. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how many pitches you can even throw in two hours and six minutes. But just the same, it was a yeah. two nothing win by the Twins. It was total dominance by you keeping the ball on the on the corners. It was a great pitching performance. And then. Uh, then, of course, Minnesota wins game two. And then you go back to L.A., and what happens? The Dodgers sweep you three games in a row mm, before yes, you did. take them out again mm-hmm. in game six, and you come back and do it again to them. Another shutout, another complete game performance. I, I got to guess you threw at least 300 pitches. Yeah, I, I, I wanted to throw strikes. That was the most important thing. On uh, keeping people off the bases and, and throwing strikes, and that was one thing that um, I was really concerned about was making sure uh, that I put the ball in play uh, and um, make the guys uh, hit the ball somewhere. Uh, and and uh, John Shane uh, believed in that also, make them hit the ball with something on it. You know, he used to tell me that all the time. Hit the ball with something on it. Well, and evidently that worked. <laughs> it did. Well, you were the Sporting News American League Pitcher of the Year that year. Mm-hmm. Zorlo Vasalis won the Most Valuable Player Award in that 1965 World Series. And to this day, and I don't take anything away from any player because I know how hard the game is. I know mm-hmm. how difficult it is to play on a day-to-day basis. But how in the hell did Zoila Versalis win the MVP award in that World Series? Yeah, I know. I, I know. Oh, no, you too. Okay, <laughs> I'm glad I'm not the only one. I mean, you look over on the flip side of the coin. On the team that won the World Series, you got Ron Fairley hit 379 with two dingers and six RBIs. Wes mm-hmm. Parker hit 304 with a home run. Maury Wills at 267. And then you've got Mudcat Grant, who's sitting on the same bench as Versailles, that threw two shutouts. Yeah. How does he win the MVP award? Just the same. We're not going to drug that up because I don't think it's fair to Zoilo. He won the MVP award. He was the most valuable player in the World Series. But it's one of those head scratchers that we got to go back on every now and then and wonder, how did that happen? I think Billy Martin probably had a lot to do with it because he he really, you know, he was a Zolo Pacerius guy. Well, I tell you what, if Billy had that much pull before he got to New York and with George Steinbrenner, I'm pretty impressed. <laughs> Mud, I, before we let you go, yeah. and I want to go back and I want to talk about a couple of things. For one thing, I want to talk about your charity golf tournament that's coming up. 
Yes. But I also, let's talk about that right now. Okay. Tell tell everybody uh, about the charity golf tournament that's going on and what it benefits. Well, this is this year is the 16th year of the charitable uh, golf tournament, uh, and um, uh, at the Hall of Fame, I, I they used to have a golf tournament, and um, a gentleman uh, that I played with. Uh, uh, at the uh, at the uh, t- at the tournament, uh, he always suggested uh, uh, to the uh, uh, to the uh, tournament about um, playing with him. And then he he said one day, uh, uh, "Listen, let's let's put something together." And uh, he just he would he was. Evan about that. He said, "I said, what can we put together?" He says, "Well, he says, uh, let's think about uh, juvenile diabetes. Let's think about this person, that person, and let's see if we uh, can uh, can have a, a golf tournament uh, every year." And uh, I said, "Well, how can we do that?" He says, "You're looking at it right here." And he was talking about himself, of course. And that's what we did. We put the tournament together. So that uh, tournament's taking place in uh, Binghamton, New York. Binghamton, New York. Uh, uh, and uh, On, on this, August 30th, right? August 30th, and this is the 16th year uh, that we have had it. And uh, the um, not only the juvenile the, uh, beat us, but the soldiers that uh, uh, they were. We also we we did it for two people. Were uh, soldiers that uh, was coming back uh, from the war and so forth and so on. That was um, that was hurt. So we did that, uh, and uh, we uh, so far we raised something like a million, a million four hundred. $1,000. And is there, is there a, uh, a website to go to if somebody uh, might be interested in either playing in a tournament or going to the dinner or maybe just uh, donating some money? Yeah, you, either, either way. Uh, and uh, it could be, it could be uh, in Binghamton, New York, that's where the uh, tournament, uh, that's where the tournament is. Uh, and it's and it's called the uh, Jim Grant. I'm tr- I'm trying to think a little bit now. I'm sorry about that. It's uh, all right, because I know it's right online. I mean, if you Google uh, Jim Mudcat Grant Golf Tournament, you're mm-hmm. going to find out any information that you want to know about right. this golf tournament in Binghamton. Mm-hmm. So, Mud, before I let you go, yes, um, I want to throw out a few. Uh, a few things about my show, uh, Dirty Kurtz Dugout. That's where you are. You're on the bench with me today, Mudcat. I appreciate it. And it's available everywhere. Good podcasts are found. And that includes naturally Apple, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spotify, and Anchor.fm. So please make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the show uh, whenever you listen. That really helps to let us know more about the show and how you people feel about it. 
And more importantly, if you'd like the show, if you do like the show and want to continue to see it grow, please become a patron at patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua. Mud. Yeah. Ni- 1960. 1960? 1960. A long time ago. Mm-hmm. You were one of those players that used to sing the yes. national anthem. Yes. And I read with extreme interest about something that happened with <laughs> you and one of the coaches in 1960. <laughs> and he got his just due, and I think you did too. But if everybody doesn't know, Jim Mudcat Grant is was not only a great baseball pitcher, he's a song and dance guy too. So naturally, when the National Anthem comes on and you're standing there as a ball player, you're going to start singing. Yeah. Well, Mud sang the lyrics a little differently (laughs) than they're known. And I'd love for you to explain that to the listeners. Well, and this land is not so free. Because I can't go to Birmingham and sit down at the county it's as easy as that. And you know what? I can picture you singing that song with the chuckle that yeah. you have because everybody that knows you knows that you have great uh, personality, that you like to mess around. But then again, you can throw some serious things into mm-hmm. what you're saying with the good character that you have. And back then in 1960, everything that you were talking about was true. Yeah, it was uh, back in those days. It was very difficult because there were there were time zones and there were there were places there were places you couldn't go. Uh, and um, when we uh, when we used to go and uh, and and play in different places, uh, uh, it was very difficult because you. Can't go to Mississippi, sit down at the county. I changed it <laughs> a little bit there, and that's what happened back in those days. And when I when I sung it that way, I was it was sort of in and I was putting it in a position where it was very difficult because of the way racism was back in those days. It was in jest, but it was true. Say that again. I'm sorry. It, you were you were singing it in jest, but yet you were singing truth, uh, right. something truthful. That's true. That's true. And um, so you got in an argument with the bullpen coach Ted Wilkes, who was from Texas. Yeah, by the way. I, I did. What well, it was Wilkes that uh, uh, that uh, he and I we just had our difficulties, you know, during that whole time that uh, he was. In the you know in the bullpen and uh, uh, when I sang it you know when I sang it it, it just it just came out you know <laughs> <laughs> well guess what Wilkes wasn't with the club that year or next year but Mudcat was yeah, so that'll true. tell you who was right and who was wrong in that situation <laughs> but just to say Mud I really appreciate it by the way allstar slash golf dot com that's where anybody wants to go to that wants to help out with this tournament or it might be in the Binghamton area is interested in going out and seeing everybody that's going to be there. It's going to be a great time. Mudcat, I look forward to seeing you. 
I appreciate you being on the show. Thank you so much, my friend. Thank you, my friend. I appreciate it. I appreciate it also. Jim Mudcat Grant. Wow. Cleveland Indians, Minnesota Twins, Los Angeles Dodgers, Montreal Expos. He was the first starting pitcher ever throw a pitch for the Montreal Expos. St. Louis Cardinals, Oakland A's, and he finished up his last year in 1971 with the Pittsburgh Pirates. Well, my next guest is, this is going to be interesting, and I'll tell you why. Here's a quote from this guy coming on. Injuries sometimes are unavoidable, but epidemics, those are completely preventable. Who said that? Tommy John. No, not the pitcher. Not the pitcher we all know. Not the Tommy John that probably lives down the street from you because there must be hundreds of thousands of Tommy Johns around the United States and around the world. But this is Dr. Tommy John III. Any relation? You betcha. You betcha. Dr. Tommy John is the son of the Tommy John, who, as well as being one hell of a pitcher, 280 games, I believe he won in the big leagues, he also has a surgery named after him, which has made him just as famous as his pitching did. And you know what? His son wants to stop as many of those surgeries as he possibly can. Dr. John, welcome. Thank you very much, Kurt. It's my pleasure. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you, man? Well, I'm doing great. You know, we talked a couple of years ago when, uh, when I had your dad and you on the TV show, the postgame show. Uh, that we were doing, and uh, you were just getting started here in San Diego. Um, right. And you've done quite a bit since then. Why don't you, uh, why don't you catch us up with um, not only the websites but the books and yeah. just the thought process behind what you're trying to do? So my whole mission moving out here is um... – basically to take in every human athlete and put them in a better position to heal themselves to a greater level or perform at a greater level, whether that's in sports, um, you know, on the golf course, on the weekend, uh, sometimes getting up and down off the toilet. Um, we're all human athletes and we're all wanting to perform these things in life. Sadly, the most common patient walking through my door are youth athletes. Um, most of them with elbow injuries, but now we're seeing stress fractures and spines. We're seeing ACL surgeries in nine-year-olds. Um, seems like everybody that walks through the door and is holding an elbow or knee also previously had a concussion, and they're 13 years old. So it, it's, it's kind of out of control in, in a lot of sports. We're seeing epidemics, not just in baseball with Tommy John surgeries, but we're seeing them in, in many, many sports. So there's a lot of things going going wrong and I'm just I'm just here to kind of everybody's looking for the finger in the dam and I'm just here to announce that the dam's overflowing and we got to build the dam up and and build it bigger and broader um and it starts in the homes with our kids now I've got Tommy John Dr. Tommy John Performance and Healing Center in Sorrento Valley that's where I can 
whoever walks through my door, I can help, you know, walking side by side with you. I, I always say in my first day in the office uh, with the patient, I'm following the breadcrumbs you lead because you're, you're the person who's going to guide this, not me. Um, and then I actually came up and released, published a book June 5th called Minimize Injury, Maximize Performance. And the purpose behind the book was to provide a solution to go with all the stats and the science that you can't Google. I, I do it every morning. You, you can't Google youth sports injuries, Tommy John surgeries, youth athletes, sports specialization, whatever you want to say, and not read some, some study that's been done or research or stats. But everybody's been left with now what? What do we do now? Great. Now we're terrified. Now what do we do? And so I've provided in the best way that I know how with my experience and everything else, um, a solution that, that parents and coaches and players can have in their homes, in the privacy of their homes, to take, a, take the reins on this thing and not have to feel like they have to go to a specialist or some special place in Texas or Florida to get this solution solved, but it's actually in their home. So that's, that's my mission. That's where we're at now. The website is don'tcutmykid.com is where you can find – uh, right. anything with my facility or the, or the book itself. So, What would you do to change the attitude towards velocity, and where would you start? you got to start young. You have to start as early as they start throwing. It, it has to be across the board, um, just the approaches. The approach to just raising an athlete, and we're forgetting that a baseball player is supposed to be an athlete. Now there's not really many athletes. There's just these robots that throw. If they can't throw it over, then that's not their night. But they, they can't have a catch. They can't play pepper. They can't hit the ball the other way. There's, there's, no, there's no athletes anymore. And so I would start young, which is when the athlete is grown and when a lot of these habits are developed, whether you're playing other sports or whatever. I'd outlaw youth, youth elite teams till after 13 or 14 years old. I don't know if we – I mean – you're talking about $15 billion business in youth sports. So that's, that's going to be kind of tough. Yeah, I think, I mean, I mean, think about that, right? It's Goliath. <laughs> it's Goliath on top of Goliath on top of Goliath. But um, I'd also have some sort of physical standards test. You know, if we threw in a physical standards test to be able to even try out for some of these teams, they used to do it in hospitals, Kurt, in order to get an interview in a hospital in like the late 90s, you had to pass a physical standards test because they had to have all their employees be able to perform certain things when a patient hit the floor or what have you. They got rid of the physical standards test. Why? Because nobody could be hired in a hospital. So now, now if a kid doesn't make the team because he didn't pass on a physical standards, well, he goes home and doesn't buy lessons and, and clinics and showcases. He goes home and starts kind of growing and working with his family on how to how to be a mover and a, and a worker and then all of a sudden you got these pitchers coming up that can that are able to be coached pitch the art of pitching will be back again they still throw hard i asked my dad let me see what you think about this dad could you guys throw harder back then oh yeah he's like we he's like i could reach back and throw over 90 it'd be dead straight but i could do it and that's him throwing 84 what about the guys that already threw 94, 95, 96, like Gossage, some of those guys? What if they only had an inning to throw? Could they have thrown 98, 102? Uh, he, he seemed to think that they had more in the tank, but it was about getting out and, and getting out the next night and the next night and the next night. 
Instead, that, now it's just blow it away. And that's the difference fixed, in the game you know? today. Yeah. And I don't know. I don't have an answer uh, to <laughs> right. the questions that I've posed to you about where would you start and what would you do? Because trust me, I've thought about this dozens and dozens <laughs> of times. But with youth baseball the way it is, the travel yeah. ball organizations, the showcases, the pressure that is put on kids nowadays by their yeah. parents. It's just a shame the amount yeah. of money that's being made for one reason, for the good almighty dollar. And, well, I'm going to be fair to the good ones out there, but they're far and few between. Right. Most of it is all about the amount of checks you're going to get in at the end of the month and the number of kids that you've got within your organization and how many showcases – how many tournaments can we go to where we can get extra money thrown into this organization? And it's just Absolutely. not going to stop unless parents no. just stop bringing kids there, and they're not going to do that. No. They, um, there's just a lot of, like, murmuring in the background, and until that murmuring and complaints and, ah, oh, they're pushing him too hard. My kid's got pitch counts, and he's thrown 12 months of the year. Uh, but until the murmuring turns into just the absolute denials, stop we stop going into these leagues the leagues will dissolve but again it's got to start at home it's got to start with the parents decisions and we're babying the pros and overworking the kids and here's what we've got i'm glad you said that because that that's the thing that i really struggle with i want to keep the parents the hell out of the deal but when it comes to this situation you can't right i mean you have to rely on the parents to use some kind of experience and sense into the situation where they're seeing a coach sending their kid down out down to the bullpen to warm up where he's already pitched the day before or a couple of days before that he threw 80 or 85 pitches and now they're going to send them back the the dad's got to be sensible enough to go wait a second that's not going to happen you got to find somebody else to throw what how successful have you been with a reasonable situation and when i say that i'm talking about uh you can't splint a finger if it's broken in half right you got to go in there and operate on it and put the bone back together with a situation where uh the the ligaments haven't been completely torn apart where somebody's walked into your office how successful have you been on rehabilitation of that thing without the person getting surgery one of the one of the worst ones I saw, I saw was um, it's actually mentioned in the book uh, in the very beginning of the book. His name is Jared. He was in Georgia. He was actually a catcher, and he had a a pretty severe partial tear. Now it was still intact. Doctor Andrews evaluated him. It was a partial tear. He gave him the option. He goes, "I'll give you a month. You could possibly try to work around this. Being a catcher now, right? Being a catcher, it was a little different, but still." He had had pain, and it was just shut down. He was a pretty good, pretty good high school catcher. He approaches me with his mom, and they're just like, you know, what do we do? So I lay it out where we're going to go, and I try to explain. Listen to me now. When you're in this situation, the imbalance that you've got, an injury is such a big deal that to right the ship and get your body above where it was before the injury is going to take so much work. So much consistency and grit. I don't think you understand what I'm talking about. Let me repeat myself. And then I say it again. 
Because what we're about to do is going to take you doing it. I don't have any magic machines. I don't have anything that I can do to fix you. You heal you. And that element is missing in a lot of people these days, especially our youth and even at the professional level. The work at the consistency, grit, determination, and effort going on. And when you're injured, it has to be doubled or tripled. So I lay it out. Kid's like, done. Let's go. He worked as hard as anybody I've had. After a little over a month, goes back to a re-eval. They check. They do all the stress tests, all this. I mean, it appears good. You know, start your throwing program and let's see what goes. He rolled through the throwing program. He finished out the season. He caught. He went to a JUCO, and he played over at um, South Carolina and never had a problem since. And it was that was a partial tear. And this isn't – I mean, conditions could have been even more ideal. And so I've seen it with ACLs, partial ACLs in the knee. I've seen it with labrums, labrums in the hip and the shoulder. But here's the, here's the element that's missing in the success or failure of a case. It's, it's, that, it's that face people make when they're really, really zoning in, whether they're playing a piece on the piano, creating art on a canvas, or an athlete trying to heal themselves are so sick and flipping tired that they're in pain or they're dysfunctional or they can't compete anymore. And it could be a 76-year-old, but it's that face they make, the furrow of the eyebrows, their eyes zone in, and that's it. I don't see that. When I see that, they heal. It's a one-to-one. And that's, that's just missing because we're in a fix-me society. Somebody fix me. Somebody make me better. Somebody bring me to the end. Um, and so the success, it, it's all there. It's all within you, at least putting it in the best environment possible. And I think the greatest thing about my dad's case was that he burned the ship. He had no other way back. <laughs> it was just like, ah, what do I got to lose? You know? And so he went in, and, but with his just personality and the way he is, it wasn't going to fail. He, Job said he was going to do it. My dad said, if you fail once, you're going to do it again. You're going to do it a third time if it fails again. And then if not, I'm going to learn the knuckleball. But it's, it's that, <laughs> that desire, and it doesn't necessarily have to be for baseball, right? It could be just for life, that desire for coming back to perform in life. I, ju- I just don't see it a lot. But in the ones that do, I've seen some stuff that people will call miracles, but I'm just like, that's the expectation. Boy, there's – I got – a thousand questions for you. There's so much that we could follow Try. up on. We have to have uh, a follow-up show on this because there has to be somewhere to go to yeah. start the process of trying to teach these youth organization coaches and bless their heart too, by the way, Yes. because yeah. there's a lot of these guys that go out there, they volunteer their time uh, when it gets to the professional level. And when I say professional level, I'm not talking about MLB folks. I'm talking about 12- and 13-year-old and 14-year-old kids playing youth travel ball. That's the professional level. It might not be on the kid's point of view, but it sure as hell is on the team's point of view because that's the way they make money. And even some of those coaches are great, and they do a heck of a job, but there's still a lot of stuff to learn. And there has to be somewhere to start where these guys – that go into these Little League programs every year as we watch the Little League World Series in Williamsport, Pennsylvania being played, there must be a way to go in and give these guys some instructions and some experience on what and what not to do when it comes to protecting kids' arms. 
Right. So let's follow up on this. I really appreciate. I really appreciate it. And you know what? My next show, I'm going to be talking about uh, your dad in it. (laughs) Oh, really? Because oh yeah, we're going to talk about people uh, that have been snubbed. Ah. Going into Cooperstown. Ah. And he is definitely one of the guys that should be considered. Uh, but we will talk about that. I don't even want to get in it with you because I know where you'll go. You know, so, <laughs> I'm getting all fired up right now. <laughs> so, I, Tommy, I, I really appreciate the time. We're definitely going to do it again. We've got to follow up on this show. Thank you so much for being a part of Dirty Kurt's Dugout. I appreciate it, and we'll talk again soon. Kurt, I appreciate you helping me with my mission, man. Thank you. Thank you. Dr. Tommy John III. Hey, I don't want to bring up Robert Moranville or George High Pockets Kelly. Uh, These guys are in the Hall of Fame. They deserve to be there, and they're there. But there's guys that are not in the Hall of Fame that deserve to be there. And whether they deserve to be there more than those guys, well, that's up for discussion. But when you talk about Lou Whitaker and Kenny Lofton, these are two guys that were premier players of their day, and they didn't get the necessary 5% in their first year eligibility to stay on the ballot for the Hall of Fame, something's wrong. We're going to talk about that on the next show. As a matter of fact, some of these names that I've thrown out are going to be on the show. Richie Allen, Gary Sheffield, Steve Garvey, and, of course, the aforementioned Tommy John. Lou Whitaker, Kenny Lofton, Richie Allen, Gary Sheffield, Steve Garvey, and Tommy John. Just a few of many names that, in my mind, have been snubbed from having a plaque in Cooperstown, New York. I want to talk about it all year long, not just at induction time or the week or two before and after. So next show, we're going to talk about it, and some of those guys are going to be on the show. Thanks for joining us. It's Dirty Kurtz Dugout. And remember, go to patreon.com slash Kurt Bavacqua and take a look because the offer that's out there right now is just, in my mind, it's too good to be true. I don't know how my producer, uh, my backbone of this show did it, but he did do, do, do it. Dave Ratz over in Maui. He managed to procure these bottles of wine with Hall of Famer signatures on them that are great, great limited reserves. And they're all yours for free. All you have to do is be a Patreon subscriber. Go there and look at it and tell me if I'm wrong. And do me a favor. Go to our Facebook page and tell me who you think is the biggest snub that has been left off the ballot of Cooperstown that should be in. I'm not talking about guys that are still on it. I'm not talking about the Barry Bonds. I'm talking about the guys that it's going to take the Veterans Committee to get them on. We'll be back with you next time on Dirty Kurt's Dugout. This is Kurt Bavacqua again. I thank everybody for listening. I want to thank Dennis Gillius, my producer here in studio, and I want to thank my backbone, as I just did, Dave Ratz over in Maui. Thank you so much. This is Kurt Bavakwa saying goodbye. Until next time, Dirty 
Kurt's dugout. I love this song. I really do. Time for another game, folks. See you next time. The scooter, the barber, and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque. Especially Willie, Mickey, and the Duke. Well, Casey was winning. Hank Aaron was beginning. One Robbie going out.